Our reading today is from Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the Lord's word for us today. Thanks, Kim. Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the elders here at Wingfoot, and we're uh, excited to be gathered here this morning, uh, uh, centered on Jesus and his word this morning. Uh, Last week, we started a series called Mixtape. You can see kind of the the image there on the screen. Uh, And the idea behind this series is this, is that in the center of this book that Kim just read from uh, is a collection of music, a collection of poetry. You could call it a mixtape or a greatest hits album. And it is collected uh, from people who are trying to make sense of life, who are living life like you and I live life. And at times they say, man, what is God even doing? Or where even is God? Or they're making a decision or facing a hard circumstance. They're saying, God, what am I supposed to do? And so they write music. They write poetry. And so it's been collected here for us to explore. So through the series, we are putting the headphones in, we are pressing play, and we are listening to this music. And the beautiful thing about music is that good music connects our head to our heart. Good music has lyrics that challenge us or inspire us or that entertain us. And so we're we're thinking about the the lyrics and the words, and then the beat and the rhythm and the mix of it uh, brings our whole selves to it, right? It brings our emotions to it, brings the things that we're feeling. And that's what the Psalms invite us to do, is to bring our whole selves before God and say, what in the world is happening? Help me make sense of the stuff of life. And so that's what we're going to be doing through this series. It's an invitation to bring whatever your feelings are. Whatever the stuff that you're carrying from this past year and the anxiety and the stress of that, whatever decision or issue you're facing, it's an invitation to bring that and to make sense of it through this book called the Psalms. Now, last week, we introduced this series, and I said that there were two original tracks to this psalm, or to this mixtape. There are two original tracks, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They were written and put at the beginning of this album to introduce us to what we're about to listen to. And so they introduce us to the central question of the Psalms and the central character of the Psalms. Last week we looked at Psalm 1, and if you remember the the question that Psalm 1 was asking is who or what's on repeat? Who are you listening to over and over and over again? Because the songs you listen to, the messages you listen to, the voices that you listen to shape the world you live into. If you're always listening to one voice or one perspective, it's going to shape how you view the issues, it's going to shape how you view 
your world. And so the psalm invited us to consider what it means to listen to God's song on repeat. And if you remember, Psalm 1 said that there are only two songs that you can sing. You can either sing the song about God and his world and the goodness and the justice and the righteousness of it, or you can sing a song that's all about me and my happiness and my opinion. And that's really the challenge of Psalm 1, is what song are you singing? Today we're going to explore Psalm 2, the psalm that Kim just read. And Psalm 2 introduces us to the central character of the psalms. So there's this character that shows up in Psalm 2 that then shows up a couple other times as you're listening to this album, and it's a really important character, and he looms large over the psalms. And so we're going to discover who this character is. But in order to do that, we have to understand what type of music Psalm 2 is. Uh, if you open up your favorite music app on your phone, right? Uh, for me, it's Spotify. When I open up Spotify, it gives me some options of types of music that I can listen to. I can listen to pop, or I can listen to smooth jazz, depending on my mood, right? Uh, or maybe podcasts or your thing. But Spotify says, hey, do you want to listen to this type of music? And if you click on that, it'll give you some music that sounds the same. Psalm 2 is a specific type of music. It is a coronation song. And that means it was written on the occasion of someone becoming king. That in that day and age, someone was being crowned king, and so they wrote Psalm 2 to be read or sung at that event. And so it's full of kingly kind of kingdom language. Now the problem for us is that we don't really have much experience with that. We don't have a king that we look up to, although we did get really obsessed with uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle a couple, couple weeks ago, right, when she spilled the tea on the British royal family. There was something there that caught our attention, though. Like kings and kingdoms loom large in our imagination. They always show up, whether that's uh, Lord of the Rings and the kings and the kingdoms of that story, or more recently, Game of Thrones, or even The Crown on Netflix, there's always a story that's being told about a king and a kingdom. Oftentimes, in those stories, what people are concerned about is who is wearing the crown. Because whoever wears the crown, whoever has the crown, no matter how good they are or bad they are, no matter if they're supposed to be there or not supposed to be there, when you wear the crown, you're in charge. So we're going to talk about the crown in Psalm chapter 2. This crown represents authority. It represents who is in charge, who's calling the shots, who gets the final say. And so we're going to ask three questions of Psalm chapter 2. The first question we're going to ask is this, who wants the crown? Who wants the crown? Second, we're going to ask, who gets the crown? Who gets the crown? And the third, we're going to ask, who's wearing the crown? Who's wearing the crown? So who wants the crown? Who gets the crown? Who's wearing the crown? So first, let's talk about who wants the crown. Notice Psalm 2 begins with a question that I think we ask anytime we turn on the news. Why is the world so chaotic? Why is the world so violent? He's looking and saying, why are the nations raging? Why are the peoples plotting in vain? It seems like every week you turn on the news and there's something like this. Violence in the Middle East. Violence in our own city. Why is it that this is the case? That's the question that the psalmist is asking. And the answer that he leads us to is found in verses 2 and 3. That the reason why the world is so chaotic, the reason why there's so much violence and injustice in our world is because we all want the crown. We all want the crown. Notice what he says in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves. They are setting themselves. That's this idea that I'm going for the throne. I'm going for the crown. And then the chorus of the song that they sing, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They want to be in charge. What Psalm 2 is saying is that the reason why the world is so chaotic, 
The reason why there's so much violence in our, in our world and on our streets is because we're all going for the crown. We all want to be in charge. Now, you may think, hey, I, I'm not a king. I, I'm not a, a, a ruler. He's not talking to me, but notice this. All right, so in, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, why do the peoples plot in vain? That word plot is the same word that he used last week in Psalm 1 for meditate. What he's saying is, last week we said we're all singing one of these two songs. We're either singing a song about God or singing a song about me. But now what's happened is individuals who are singing the song that's all about me and my happiness, me and what I want, have now joined a chorus and created a culture and a nation and a kingdom that's full of people that are all about me. They're all singing the same song that I want what I want, that I want to be king. He's now universalized this and said we all want the crown. We all want to be in charge. We all want autonomy. I think if we were to peel back the layers of the conflict, whether it's a conflict in your home between you and your spouse or you and your kids or a conflict on your block between you and your neighbor, if we peel back the layers, we'd find that really what's happening is that, is that I want to call the shots. I want to be in charge. I want to be right. That that same song that was sung in chapter one, now the psalmist is saying, we're all singing this. We all want the crown. We all want to be in charge. But notice in verse 3, he's giving us what we're saying, what our hearts are saying, what the kingdoms are saying when we're going for the crown. They say, let us loose these bonds. Let us cast away their cords. What it is that we want is autonomy. We want autonomy. Now, autonomy is simply this, that no one's telling me what to do. I get to decide what's right and wrong for me. I don't have to answer to anyone. I get to be my own boss. I don't have to have a manager that I have to report to. I don't want to have to have a spouse that I have to contend with. I want to be on my own. Now, here's the thing. Autonomy in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, right? If you've got kids, your goal hopefully is to, to be autonomous, to not always live in your basement. You want them to become autonomous human beings who can make choices and decisions. But notice that the psalmist is saying this, that the direction of our autonomy is not neutral. We actually want autonomy from God. That our hearts really, what they're fighting against, what we're up against is that we want autonomy, not just in general, we want autonomy from God. He says this, he says, we have, uh, they've taken counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That the autonomy that we want, the battle that we're really fighting is not just general autonomy, like get off my back, don't tread on me. We want autonomy from God. Now that might sound weird to you. Like you think, no, I want God. If you, my neighbor loves God, right? If you talk to a lot of people in our neighborhood, they would say, yeah, they believe in God. In fact, if you talk to a lot of people in our city or even our area, we have a lot of people who say, I believe in God. It's a generally like accepted kind of thing. Now we could squabble about what kind of God you believe in, but generally people say, yeah, I believe that God is out there. So how can the psalmist say that we don't want God? See, I think what the psalmist is saying is this. We want a God who lets us wear the crown. Right? We want a God who lets us wear the crown. So, so we'll believe in God. We'll believe that he's out there as long as I'm still wearing the crown, as long as I'm still in charge. I think we do this in one of two ways. Uh, if you talk to some people and you ask them what they believe about God, they'll say, yeah, I believe about God. And if you peel back the layers and ask some follow-up questions, a lot of people will say, I believe that God is love. I mean, that's a biblical thing. That's actually from 1 John. 1 John says God is love. But what people often mean by that is that I want a God who is loving and accepts and affirms everything that I do. That I want a God who is applauding me 
and affirming me and approving all of the things that I do. That is a God who lets me still wear the crown and decide what I want to do. That's the kind of God that I want. But here's the problem with that. That's not the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible is a God of love and grace, but at the same time, we see that God has a will. God has a plan. He has purposes. He has strength. He has a desire. He has things that he wants to see happen. And when the world starts getting chaotic and when evil people become king, God intervenes. And so here's the thing. When we say we believe that God is love and what we really mean is we want him to approve or affirm everything that I do, that's actually a really privileged thing to say. It's actually a really privileged thing to say because if you are on the bottom and there are evil kings or evil men above you, you need a God who can act. You need a God who will judge evil. You need a God who will intervene. And that's where the people who first wrote this song were. They weren't at the top, they were at the bottom. And so they need a God who is a God of justice, a God who can intervene, a God who has power. But oftentimes we say, I just want a God who's loving and affirms and applauds everything that I do. We miss the fact that there are millions of people for whom that is not good news, that they need a God who can intervene. And that's the God that we find in the Bible. Is a God who is loving and who is gracious, but who also is just and who wants to see right things happen. And so to just say that God is love, I believe in that kind of God, misses the God of the Bible. We're still wearing the crown and we just want a God to applaud us. But the second way that we do this is more of like we have a peace treaty with God. And we often do this through religion, right? So we're wearing the crown uh, we have kind of our space, and, and sometimes we'll go visit God at church, or we'll go do some things to work the peace treaty that we have with God. I'll do some good things, or I'll read my Bible, or I'll pray. I'll do religious kinds of things in order to maintain the peace between me and God. But the problem is I'm still wearing the crown. And so I'm kind of manipulating God with my good behavior, or my Bible reading, or my showing up in church. You see, the problem is we want God, but we don't want a God who will mess with our crown. We still want to be in charge. But the problem is, if you read Psalm 2, that the person who gets the crown has already been decided. It has already been decided and declared who gets the crown. So let's answer the second question. Who gets the crown? We're all chasing after the crown. We want to be autonomous. We want to have our own thing. And we'll use God to prop us up and to allow us to keep the crown on. But the problem is that God is saying, I've already decided who gets the crown. In verse three or four, he says this, God is sitting in the heaven laughing. And he's looking at the, the craziness of us all chasing after the crown, trying to be autonomous. And he's saying, that's not going to work. I've already decided who gets the crown. And this is where we meet the character that's really important throughout the rest of the Psalms, this person who's called the anointed. Your Bible translation might have that capitalized because it's a title. To be anointed means that you have been uh, appointed as the next king. So someone would pour oil on your head. It was a sign that no matter what happens, when the, that king dies, you are next in line. And so the anointed one has already been decided. That word anointed is the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Messiah becomes this key figure over the course of the rest of the Psalms. He shows up in some significant points. When people are asking, what is God doing? They say, Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. What is this Messiah like? Look at the couple of verses where it talks about this anointed one, this Messiah. Uh, notice that there's this proximity, this relationship between God and this one. God didn't just randomly pick up a random person off the street and said, you're the guy. No, there's, he calls him his son. There's this relationship, this intimacy between God and the anointed one. 
Notice that God is going to give the anointed one everything that he asks for. He says, I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. You will own the earth. In his hand, he holds an iron scepter. It's a picture of his authority. That the anointed one, the Messiah, has already been picked. And notice we're in Psalm 2. We aren't even in the Gospels yet. This has been God's plan all along. The Psalms have been pointing to what's going to happen in the first century. Because what happens is when Jesus shows up, people are asking this question, are you that guy? Are you that king? Are you that Messiah? Because people had popped up and said, hey, I'm the guy. I'm the Messiah, follow me. And what happened is they always led to some sort of bloody revolution. It was always just another guy seeking the throne, seeking the crown. And so they were getting really tired of Messiahs who are popping up and just continuing the problem. So when Jesus shows up and he starts healing people, when Jesus shows up and he starts teaching about God, people are like, what is it about this guy? That something about this guy is different, that this maybe is this Messiah, the anointed one that we are looking for. But then an interesting thing happens. is at the beginning of Jesus' popularity, lots of people love him, but slowly people start hating him. They start turning on him. They said, no, this isn't the guy. This couldn't be the guy. He doesn't fit the bill. Like, where's, where's his authority? Where's his revolution? Where are these things that he was promised? Why is he doing these things that he's doing? And what you find is that in the final, one of the final scenes of Jesus' life, he's standing before Pilate. And Pilate is the guy who wore the literal crown. He was the governor. He could make decisions and people listen. And Pilate asks him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, you've said so. And then Pilate presents Jesus to this crowd of people, and he says, is this your king? And what do they say? They say, we have no king but Caesar. Why do they miss it? Why do they miss it? You see, here's the thing. What, what people couldn't wrap their mind around, what people missed about Jesus, is that Jesus' crown was a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. That his crown was a crown of thorns. He wasn't a king like the other kings, where he was going to gather his armies and then take over the capital. His, his disciples, he told them, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, so we're not going to stockpile arms. We're not going to lead a violent revolution. Instead, Jesus is a king who wears a crown of thorns. Jesus is a king who dies for his enemies. And all along the way, he was teaching them, and they're like, oh, you're starting to mess with my crown, Jesus. You're starting to mess with my authority. You're starting to mess with my autonomy. You mean I have to love them? You mean I have to go spend time with those people who are in the other kingdom? What are you talking about, Jesus? I don't want that. And so they decide it's easier to kill him than to deal with Jesus as king. And so I think there's a warning in that. It's so easy for us to sort of look at Jesus at a distance, but when he starts getting up in my business, when he starts messing with my kingdom and my crown, I'm like, mm, Jesus, just stay over there. But you see, one of the central things that the first Christians believed about Jesus is that he became king not through violent uprising, but through self-sacrificial love. You see, in Philippians 2, it's one of the earliest statements of belief that we have of Christians. And Philippians 2 said this, have this mind among yourselves that is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't go for the throne. He didn't try to grab the crown. Instead, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He dies at the hand of the violent nations. He dies at the hand of the violent kings. But then it says, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
See, one of the things that people missed about Psalm 2 is that if you look at it, the king, the anointed one in Psalm 2, never asks for anything. He doesn't go for the crown. Instead, the crown is given to him. And this is what Jesus does. That he dies, and because he dies and raises again, God gives him the authority. He becomes king, not through violent uprising, but through self-sacrificial love. And people couldn't deal with that. Because if that's the king and that's who I have to follow, then, then I have to deal with some stuff. But you see, here's the beautiful thing about this king, Jesus, is that because he's not a king like other kings, kings always make demands of you. Right? Kings will always make demands of you. They'll ask you to follow. They'll ask you to pay taxes. They'll always ask you for something. But Jesus is a king who has already given you everything, which means that he is a king that you can trust. He's a king that you can trust. You see, kings and nations, when they get power, the history of human history is that when kings get power, they use and abuse people. But Jesus is a king who has used and abused for you. And so he has already submitted and already demonstrated the depths of his love that he will go to show you, which means that when he asks you to do something, when he asks you to start changing things about your life, when he has teachings about your finances, about your family, or teachings about your, your sexuality, or how you engage with your enemies, that those things are things that we can trust because he has already demonstrated that he is willing to die for you. And so he is a king that you can trust. And so then the question, the third question becomes, who's wearing the crown? Who's wearing the crown? In your life, who is wearing the crown of your life? Who is the one calling the shots? Who is the one in charge? Who is the one with the authority? Psalm 2 ends with a warning and an invitation. A warning and an invitation. And the invitation is this, to find refuge in the king. To find refuge in the king. Notice that there's no refuge from the king. There's no place that you can run to. There's no place that you can hide. He owns all. Over all. There's no place that you can hide from the king. You can only find refuge in the king. What does that mean? See, there's a weird phrase in there. It says, kiss the sun, right? which sounds kind of awkward. Right? Kiss the sun. But the idea of that is this, that, that when an enemy king would come into the, the king room or the throne room, Right? And they, they were going to surrender. They were going to give their allegiance to the king. Right? They would bow down. They would get low and they would maybe kiss the ring on the hand of that king. And then, and then they would even maybe take the crown off and lay the crown at the feet of that king. That's what it means to kiss the sun. It's to bow the knee. To take off your crown and put it at his feet. And say, Jesus, you're my king. Jesus, you're my king. I'm not going to fight my battles anymore. I'm not going to fight against you anymore, that you have won the victory, you have won my heart, you are king of all kings, and so I'm going to surrender myself and trust you and find refuge in you. And to find refuge in him is, is to say his victory is my victory, that his name is now my name, that his kingdom is now my kingdom, and I, I find refuge in the walls of his kingdom. I find refuge in his teaching. I find refuge in who he is. It's the invitation. It's to take off the crown and to give it to Jesus and to find refuge in his name. But notice that there's also a warning. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry. See, here's the thing. There's only one crown. There's only one crown and it goes to Jesus. And Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that one day Jesus is going to bring the kingdom here in all of its fullness in fact, Revelation has a picture of Jesus coming on a horse carrying an iron scepter. 
There's going to come a day when all the world is going to see just how good and just King Jesus is. And so the warning is coupled with the invitation to find refuge in him now, to lower your crown now, or that crown is going to come off eventually. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the rightful king. And so the warning goes out to everyone. The invitation goes out to everyone to say the king is coming. Find refuge in him by giving him your crown. So who's wearing the crown? Who's wearing the crown in your life? In the stuff that you're dealing with, in the decisions that you're making, in the way that you live your life, who's wearing the crown? You see, you can't be a Christian and still wear the crown. Because to be a Christian is to say, I've been wearing this crown, I've been seeking my own autonomy, and I'm laying it down. And that's what it means to become a Christian, is to lay down the crown and to trust in Jesus, to say, you are my king. And so you cannot be a Christian and still wear the crown. But what happens so often is we lay the crown down, but then we get back up again. We lay it down and say, I trust you, Jesus, but nah, not over here. I'm wearing a little crown over here in this area of my life. Who's wearing the crown in your life? Because Jesus is the king who can be trusted. And that means that you make his teaching and his mission and his kingdom the defining thing about your life. That his kingdom and his crown becomes the thing that calls the shots in your life. And what is it that Jesus is all about? You see, after he rose from the dead, Jesus gathered his disciples on a mountain. And he said this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Notice that Psalm 2 language, that all authority has now been granted to me, that God has given me the crown. I have risen from the dead. I have died for my enemies. Now I have the authority, and here's what I want you to do. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. That's Psalm 2 language. That's Psalm 2 in that message to go to all the earth and tell people about Jesus. To every tribe and, and language and people group. That means if Jesus is wearing the crown in, in your life, you're going to be someone who goes who goes out and who goes to every tribe and tongue and language and people group, not just your people, not just hanging out with people who are just like you or who agree with you or people that you enjoy spending time with, that people who are made in God's image need to hear the message that Jesus is king and his kingdom is coming. You see, often we get caught up in the battles of the little kingdoms, the battles of the nations, the battles of our culture that says, I need to be king and my people need to be in charge and, and so my opinion needs to matter, but Jesus is saying, my kingdom is coming. And so if you're part of my kingdom, go and make disciples. Go and live out my kingdom mandate on your block, around your neighbors, no matter who they are, what they look like, what they believe, love them in my name. Die for them even in my name because that's what I did for you. And so if you are wearing the crown, you're not gonna get that. But if Jesus is wearing the crown of your life, this is your calling. This is our mission. This is our mandate as a church. It's to be an outpost in this kingdom, living out a different kingdom and a different system that says Jesus is king and his kingdom is coming. So come all who want to find refuge in him. and You will find love and grace and forgiveness. And we will live as his kingdom here in the heights and in your neighborhood until his kingdom comes fully when he will make all things right. This is our king. He is wearing the crown. Is he wearing the crown of your life? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are here. Some of us need to find refuge in you. We've been wearing the crown of our own life, crown of our own autonomy, saying, I want to call the shots. God, would you show us Jesus? Would you show us his crown of thorns, his willingness to, to die for us, his enemies, 
so that we could enter into his kingdom and find refuge in him. God, we confess that we grab the crown. We want to wear the crown of our life and our decisions and our opinions and the things that we want. God, would you show us those things that we need to lay the crown down? And we need to kiss the son to embrace him so that we can live more fully and faithfully into your kingdom. And God, would we as a community here be an outpost of your kingdom, your kingdom where you said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, for such is the kingdom of God. Would we live into that kingdom and challenge the ways in which the nations and the peoples are raging to get the crown when we know you, Jesus, who is the only one who deserves it? Would you be glorified and praised in our songs and our lives as we live on our blocks and our neighborhoods? that we might see your kingdom come where we live. It's in the strong, powerful name of King Jesus that we pray this. Amen.